So, hello and welcome again to Contemporary Spiritual Life by Arate House. My name is Toby Mendelssohn, and today we're going to explore notions and techniques of embodiment informed by two very distinct but possibly complementary traditions. And these are Feldenkrais and traditional Chinese medicine. So these are often characterized as alternative therapies. So it's quite likely that we'll be drawn into a kind of dialectic with conceptions of embodiment drawn from Western science and medicine. And to help us navigate this terrain, we're joined by a great friend of mine, Carl Asaraf. Welcome, Carl. Thank you very much, Toby. And I've chosen Carl for this topic, not so much because he's a great friend or because he's an expert in either of those traditions. In fact, he's taken great pains to make it clear to me that he has no authority on those two traditions. <laughs> but nonetheless, I have, uh, I have seen him move through this terrain in a very, very inspiring way. And I've personally learned a lot from his insights, and I think we all can too. So, Carl, thank you very much for joining us. Welcome aboard. Thank you very much. I just want to start by getting uh, some sense of your journey into what we could call body awareness practices or techniques. And I had the thought that this was connected with um, doing some Aikido practice. Is that, is that true? Um, in a sense, it is true, but perhaps not in the sense, not in the sense that one might think. Um, when I started doing Aikido, it was just, it was a, I was a university student. I was very early on in my days at university. Maybe I was 19, 20, something like that. And um, it was just a thing to do. Um, and there was a lot of pleasure in it. Um, until I started to get some terrible pain in my knees and that pain in my knees became a more dispersed um, and diffuse was kind of discomfort. by the Aikido? Was it well, sort of <clears throat> causality is kind of the thing, one of the things we like, I, I need to think through when I talk about this sort of stuff or think about it. Um, in a sense, um, I was whacking my knees a lot. Um, I was doing things that weren't necessarily a, a bit reckless, I suppose, um, in some of the rolling around when I wasn't quite um, proficient at it. I was hitting my knees a lot. Um, also, there's a lot of work in Aikido that you do that involves um, all of the techniques that you can do standing, you can also do on your knees. So over time, that became quite troubling. Um, and um, it reached a point where a whack to my knees would change my mood drastically in a negative way and would lead to pain and discomfort and muscular tightening um, for days. And even I recall, I have actually one memory as I'm speaking now, um, even a few years later we were doing an honours course um, in um, reading Nagajana and I remember whacking my knee, you know, in that underground oh, yeah. cave area <laughs> in the, the old quad whacking my knee on the table as I was pulling myself in. And the rest of that lesson, I, was, I, remember, I, remember, I remember the, um, the physical consequences, but also the feeling of dread and expectation of what was so familiar to me now, the consequence of that thwack. Um, um, and, then, and, and then, yes, so, so the rest of that lesson being tinged by that, or that class being tinged by that, and, and the consequent days as well. Um, so did Aikido... What was your question initially? Well, Aikido is what led you into, I suppose, body awareness <coughs> practices, but also seemingly well, some fairly instantaneous problems. Well, what, 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 I'll jump ahead a little bit, but, but I think what um, Aikido was the first instance of 
was now, retrospectively, the first time in which something that had been abiding for a while in me uh, imposed itself as a problem that I couldn't avoid. I see. So you're going back to causality. You're saying this really was a pre-existing I, I see weakness this. or issue that was brought out by a keto practice. I see. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I feel so and in, in this sort of journey um, that I, I've been on, I can see retrospectively things that go as far back as my sense of self goes through so some of my earliest memories and, and emotions and uh, habits and ways of doing things. Um, seem connected to me to that that fragility that became imposingly apparent when I was doing that Aikido practice yeah and, but really when I was doing it it was just a physical activity and that was all I was thinking of it as um, and it became a physical activity that compromised me did you when you were learning <coughs> Aikido or practicing it did you ever look more deeply into its its history and um, particularly its idea of what the body is and how the body might be used um so the key is chi i did look at i did look at the history of it it was i suppose what's interesting about it for me is that often the presentations of what are perhaps i think problematically called eastern traditions are modern phenomena so traditional Chinese medicine, for instance, um, as I understand it, and as it is presented today, was a Maoist project. Um, obviously, there's a deep, rich tradition that preceded it, but the systematization of it and the, um, the um, bringing together of different strands and elements, such as acupuncture and, and the herbal tradition, um, was a relatively modern phenomenon. And the same goes... Sorry for my friend. The same goes for Aikido. That um, the master, whose name, whose name I forget, I will not, I will not take a guess. So sort of the, the founder of that tradition did so, what, 70, 80, 90 years ago. And so he was drawing from older traditions, but he was also a very, you know, a figure who was functioning in the modern world. I think the question is, to what degree you looked into... The presentation yeah. of the body in the system yeah. of Aikido. And, and I, was, I wasn't answering your question. I suppose from that perspective, I don't think I did look into the presentation of the body in Aikido. I did have that sense of um, the emphasis in Aikido was always um, to not meet force with force. So, so to that extent, it was not... The image of the body in a way wasn't the issue the, the, in, in the way that what I looked into, what interested me was the relationship between yeah, bodies. So perhaps we can just um, ignore everything that I just said before and, and, and just focus on that, which is that the pleasure of Aikido, and it was not a martial art in the sense that I felt in any way competent to be fighting anyone, um, because the forms were quite rigid and um, delimited. You hold my wrist like this, you strike me like that. Well, what do I do? I have a number of options. And all of those options involve a kind of an invitation an acceptance and a return such that there was this sense of um, a flow that I suppose was the issue and so never was one thinking about one body but one was thinking about the flow of bodies yeah that's perhaps the best answer I can give you um, no that actually accords with um, what I remember at the time mm. so just to bring it back to um, the idea of 
Aikido really demonstrated to you this idea of relationality, or bodies in relationality, almost in the form of a dance. <clears throat> At the same time, brought um, awoke you to kind of deep pain, hmm. connected with your knees. At what point did you explore that more deeply from a more interior point of view? And this might be leading um, more directly to Feldenkrais, where yeah. it's a bit more about you know, awareness, you know, mm. maybe not, not necessarily in a non-relational way, but in a way which privileges your understanding of your own embodiment. Well, I think it's interesting. So um, pain is like your body. For me, the experience of pain is it's the experience of protest, right? So, so I like to think, and this, this emerges to me from Feldenkrais, that um, one, it is possible to develop to a greater or lesser extent, and we all do to a greater or lesser extent. Um, it is possible to develop a kind of a literacy, a bodily literacy. And in a sense, it's necessary that we all do that. Pain is a sign that we can all read. And the way I interpret or read pain despite all of its modulations and, and, and variations, is as a scream of protest. So to experience pain is to reach a point where something is... at which there is something that is really going wrong. Um, and there are a number of signs that one can read that precede pain, that one can read almost as pre-pain. Um, at least the, I... I I take myself to be able to do. Um, and um, so this experience of pain, the reason that I've mentioned all that is that this experience of pain did that for me. It was a call, it was a scream of protest and it called for me to respond. Did you get any pre-signals or were you, was your awareness such that... Um... <clears throat> I, think, I think the answer to that is, is I'm sure I did, but I couldn't read them. So I would whack myself and be like, whatever, ouch and move on and there was a kind of a a recklessness a youthful maybe boyish recklessness to that 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 I imagined I could just throw myself into things and I would be fine but in this case it was not possible to avoid it and things got worse and so I did what most people do I guess in the case of pain is that I sought out figuratively speaking I sought out appeal right I sought out a way to fix it so I found myself at physios and osteos and pilates and also uh, specialists of various kinds uh, medical doctors and in each case i could be offered relief so in the case of physio and osteopaths i was offered some relief um, in the case of pilates i was offered um the opportunity to do something that was not that was something other than a pill insofar as I had to do something at home. I had to do something for myself. Um, I wasn't just going to someone to fix me to crack my ribs or whatever, crack my back or massage my muscles or, or something. But the Pilates did not offer me tools. The Pilates lessons that I went to did not offer me tools to deal with this pain. The screams of protest were continuing. And, and, and like I said before, this pain was not just localised at the knees, but it was a, um, a kind of whole bodily experience, whole body experience. And, a, and an ex- not just a whole body experience, but an experience of the self. Where, in a sense, the knees were the focus, 
of what was happening, but the whole thing was diffused across myself, myself and my sense of self. So I was walking with a friend down the street and saw a little warehouse that said Feldenkrais Studio and my friend, she heard about it, she mentioned it, um, and that was the end of the conversation. Um, and I was feeling desperate, frustrated with Pilates and my osteopath, and so I went along to Feldenkrais. And that's, so the answer- So you're at a point basically where anything you tried goes. a lot of different things and they didn't work. Right. And right. you're open to basically trying anything. Yeah, yeah. And at a point of crisis, you will take whatever you can, I shouldn't speak in general, general terms. If I feel stuck, I, found, I find I will keep looking for what will better serve me. Perhaps that kind of comes from a, a refusal of things that feel unacceptable. Or it might be a statement of a level of discomfort or perhaps, perhaps. Although some people, I mean, people are quite capable of living with levels of dis- discomfort that I don't think I got to. And there, I mean, there's, that's a whole other discussion um, that's not just about physical pain again or discomfort, but about the way we are formed as subjects and the kinds of expert knowledge we have at our disposal and the kinds of, the kinds of ways of making sense of things that have uh, dominance in our culture. So we were talking before about, about um, before we started recording, about, about the um, use of medical diagnoses of children in order to make sense of them forming themselves and coming into the world and the degree to which that might, although um, give people a sense that what their child is going through is recognisable and um, manageable and all these sorts of things, it also is quite reductive and um, can also limit a child's capacity for, for for self formation. And again, that's a whole other discussion, but I suppose I was just trying to yeah, no, make the point may, we might move pain. into that terrain actually mm. shortly. Um, but let's just stay with the Feldenkrais for a moment. So <clears throat> you walk past the studio and you found the studio and you decided, well, we can you give it a try? Why not? And <clears throat> knowing you at that time, at some point I realised you just really profoundly influenced you. Mm. I'm not sure how quickly that happened, but maybe you could just take us yeah, through yeah. Um, what you were doing there and what, what it was yeah, that yeah, yeah. Um, you uncovered. Well, I didn't know what I was doing there initially. Um, I didn't really understand how it differed. I remember as I started doing it, I was keeping on doing my little Pilates practice and I was integrating some of the things that happened in Feldenkrais. But what it took me a while, it took me a while to understand that the difference there before anything else is pedagogical. And I feel like Feldenkrais was the first time that I learned about pedagogy, explicitly thought about learning and teaching. So to go into a Feldenkrais group lesson is not to be told the correct exercises or the way to do things. It is to be taken through a series of explorations of different possibilities for movement around constraints. But even more fundamentally than that, it's about learning to develop one's awareness of oneself as a body. And it took me a while to come to that understanding the teacher does not tell you this is the right way to do things, this is the wrong way to do things. The teacher asks you to explore certain movements in the context of certain constraints. And there is, there is a design to those instructions. Um, there is a kind of a way that the teacher would like to guide you in that lesson. But there is also an acceptance that everyone will find different things in that lesson and will take it to a different place on the basis of where they're at. So 
and and I started to read a little bit about about Feldenkrais and read. Could some you tell us well. a little bit about Feldenkrais? Mm. It might mm. be something that a lot of listeners are not that familiar with. <clears throat> yeah, it's okay. a what early twentieth century yeah technique or discipline. Of the so body? I mean, look, it's an unfortunate surname. Um, it's 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 a guy's surname, but you know, Pilates is also a guy's surname, and and that has more of a marketable ring to it. <laughs> Some people say, Christ, what, what, what does this have to do with Jesus? I don't know. Um, he was actually a, a, a Eastern European Jewish um, physicist, engineer. He also did judo, as I understand it. There's a lot of stories. I'm sure some of them are apocryphal about how he came to develop this method based upon, I would say, one wide reading um, and, but two, a, a kind of um, a knowledge of, of various scientific disciplines, but at the same time, an idiosyncratic, but I think also highly traditional approach to that in which one's own experience or the experience of one's subjects as a practitioner of one's patients as case studies is actually a really powerful learning tool, which is very different to the double-blind, peer-controlled, studied approach which which is legitimate and all of that but um the case study which is not anecdote which is thorough investigation is in a sense the basis of of that of of the method i guess um and so so again like the the starting point in, in his writing i mean the starting point for him is always 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 awareness but also the notion of habit is really important for him so we all move the way we do. We develop habits because those are the most expedient things for us when we develop them. Um, but when Feldenkrais talks about maturity, um, what he's talking about often is the capacity to recognise that a habit that was once expedient no longer is. And that I can recognise it as a habit, evaluate it, make a decision as to whether it remains expedient or whether it is possible to change that up. Um, and that's simultaneously physical and emotional. Oh, I was about to ask whether we're talking just about habits of movement or whether we're well, going more deeply into, say, intellectual habits or, as you said, emotional habits. Well, they're all of a piece. Yeah. So, so I think the point of intervention is the physical, and I think that just is because it's, it's relatively speaking, an easy side of intervention. Yeah, because oh, yeah, it's most accessible to us. It's the thing we're most present to. Right, but also it, it allows you to creep up on the really scary psyche stuff because you're not actually dealing with it, but you are. Because your physical habits are your emotional habits. The way I hold myself and the way that I feel and the way that I think are actually of a piece. They're not separate, they're not distinct. And, and um, that's what I meant before when I was saying that retrospectively some of the things I was going through have this history that is as old as my sense of self. That my physical habits, my emotional habits, my psychic habits, they are. It doesn't do to separate them and to think of them as separate. That the way I sit and hold myself is an emotional phenomenon and does have psychic, you know, intellectual um, expressions, manifestations. Perhaps expressions is a better word. If I was if I was being a, a Deleuzean, I would say expressions, where it's not that they are reducible to one another, but that they are expressions of one another. They transform and complicate one another, um, elaborate upon one another. 
I don't want to get too philosophical, but I did, <clears throat> I did have a question which I was thinking of earlier, uh, which is, uh, I have no idea about this, but you mentioned Feldenkrais was trained as a scientist, as an engineer yep. and yep. a physicist? Yeah, look, um, the internet will say better than me. My understanding is an is engineer, but also physics, but... I'm just wondering about... No authority. Without going too, <laughs> too deeply or in yep. a way that's too um, technical... What kind of idea of the self or the mind hmm. is he working with? It's interesting. Is it Look, a little bit dualist or is it... Um... Interesting. Um, okay, I'll say first of all that he was, as I understand it, aware of yoga practices that were emerging in the West and the various interpretations and ways that was Was he influenced up. by any of the, those emerging trends? My, my understanding is he never acknowledges... You know, he mentions... He mentions yoga in passing. He mentions Freud in passing. He mentions... There are a number of traditions and... And, and I've mentioned Freud, obviously, he's not Eastern, but there are a number of traditions and um, approaches that he's aware of but don't seem to be central to his approach. He does make a big point of talking about his judo practice. He even wrote some books on judo. Right. And I think very much for him, what's interesting about judo is that, that one is using one's whole self in a similar, I mean, very different to Aikido, but in a similar way, in relationality, in this kind of, you need to see me moving, you can't see me in the <laughs> podcast, this kind of, um, these bodies responding to one another as whole bodies. But um, in terms of conception of the self... Sounds like it could be the wrong kind of question. Sounds like the kind of question well, that a philosopher would want to ask. Well, no, I think he's, he's I mean, for all intents and purposes, he's, he's a philosopher for me. I mean... I, I think it's a legitimate question to ask. I think for him, his conception of the self is definitely non-dualistic. And to the extent that he is trained in in um, the sort of uh, the disciplinary scientific European tradition, um, I don't think that precludes... I think this is one of the fallacies that we actually need to combat, that within that scientific tradition, there is an incapacity to... to to think in a non-dualistic way, right? And that's part of the um, reason why I wanted to speak to you in this in this episode because mm. all the way through so far, I think we've done five or six episodes, mm. or at least in four of them, we've been rubbing up against this kind of big tension in what we can problematically call an East-West kind of dialogue, yeah. which is a tension between an all-pervasive kind of materialism Mm. which is, you know, I, I won't call it scientific, I'll call it scientific mm-hmm. view of what the body or the self is. Right, right. Which is, you know, it's purely matter and mm. you know, you've got the whole Darwinian logic and that's just the way we are, right? Mm. Measured against um, some of the Indian and Chinese traditions which have different ways of understanding mm. the relationship between, let's just call it mind and matter or something right, like right. that. So it's been something we're coming up against. I think in almost every episode, we get to this point where we realise we're weaving ourselves in knots. Yeah. Uh, speaking about it, I'm I'm not interested in the di- in the in the opposition. I'm not interested in um, trying to position camps, and and I think I think you will find. I mean, in my experience of having studied, you know, relatively broadly, but obviously not comprehensively in any tradition, that. There are the resources in any tradition for me to interpret a host of different positions. 
um, there are obviously in certain traditions certain things that predominate, but there's also really fundamentally um, um, interactions between traditions. Endless examples of that could be cited, um, and not all of them are textual influences. Um, they could be trade influences, they could be all sorts of things, they could be all kinds of material, non-discursive practices. There are, there are so many things um, that complicate a simple division between East and West, but also more generally, a notion of cultures as billiard balls that knock against each other and that are somehow opposed, because that's not what culture is. Well, it could be more mutually informed, but um, what I'm maybe claiming a little about Falcon Price, mm. what I'm led to is mm. the idea that he's privileging something which emerges through awareness and which is almost in every case a little bit different from previous instances of it. So therefore it's not subject to being codified or put down in a way which uh, is categorical <sighs> or clear-cut. Because we're dealing with uh, aspects Look, of awareness. On, on a certain se- in a certain sense, there is, a, there is a very strong systematicity to it. It is systematic. There are principles. There's a project. There's a process. And that's all you know, articulated by him. But the point is that nobody can do this for you. That's, in a sense, the fundamental lesson. Someone can help you, and that's their pedagogical role, to um, find some coordinates and to undertake the work. But it's your work. And where you're at is where you're at. There's not a wrong place to go. That's part of the project because there's only where you're at, your evaluations of where you're at, and where you can go with that. So although it's a physical practice, it's fundamentally, a, again, as kind of a... It's like, I don't know, I mean, for, in my mind, it's the equivalent of going to see a psychologist or something that someone might do, right? Or going to see someone to help you in terms of how you think or practice yourself. Um, the fact that the point of intervention is the exploration of movement is only that that's the point of intervention. And incidentally, for certain people, that won't work as a point of intervention. At least, or, or initially, or at a certain point in their lives or where they're at. But... Um, although it seems, it's funny, systematic, but again, it's a process that each individual needs to go through from where they're at in order to get, um, to where they would imagine themselves to, to be, right? And can I just take it back to a personal level? So you, you began this with that knee issue principally. Yeah. And that clearly led you more deeply into terrain that took you far beyond that particular problem well I mean things got worse right so there was the knee then there were the shoulders then there were the um, my heels my feet feet I couldn't stand there were the the bursa that sort of the sides of my um, of my hips no of my pelvis sorry I should say the sort of furthest points out in my pelvis so there was a point where I was physically constantly uncomfortable and incapable of resting I couldn't uh, sleep or lie down on soft surfaces. I couldn't, um, again, all, all these transformations of my sense of self, of my mood would emerge. Headaches, parts of my body falling asleep, um, a kind of um, mania as well. So that the way that I would function would be through a kind of an, an adrenaline. This is what we would say, isn't it? It's such a vague word, adrenaline. I don't need to use the word adrenaline. Through a kind of a manic energy, right? Let's talk about it experientially. But like there was, there was, there was a, there was a manic energy to me, and that's how I survived. And I wonder if you recall that. That 
sometimes, and it would be a great performance sometimes. Mm. Like, you know, there, there was almost, I imagine, <laughs> there was a kind of a charisma to it. But it was also exhausted and exhausting. I think I remember maybe a period after, hmm. which is um, a period which was more... Constantly collapse on the floor. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So this is um, the thing I really remember, which mm. was you went through something of a physiological, or maybe more than purely physiological, but um, a real degeneration where you, mm. you just became... I don't know when you can describe it in your own words, but it's like... Right, right. Well, we're, we're jumping ahead a little bit. Okay. Um... So the Felon Christ, it seems to me retrospectively, gave me... The first thing it gave me were the tools to hold something at bay. But that thing that was I needed to hold at bay, I was not sufficiently literate to do that um, and not sufficiently capable because intervention into movement is one thing, but I think I was also eating inappropriately, breathing, um, living in dodgy share houses, <laughs> drinking... Um, Drinking water where the, you know, the iron and the copper pipes were connected, which apparently creates a battery. It's not good for you. <laughs> um, showering in that water, um, uh, breathing in mouldy air, and kind of reckless about it. Not really. Um, I also recall um, an increasing but old, old sensitivity to um, not just mouldy smells, but chemical smells. That's a vague word as well. What the hell is chemical smells? What I mean by that is um, um, synthetic fragrances in detergents, um, bleach type products, paints, glues, and, um, you know, that, that is something that, you know, I hear on the radio and talked about nowadays as a kind of a chemical sensitivity, um, thing, which, you know, is gaining some traction, um, at the moment. So these things were building up until there was a kind of a breakdown. And again, I was at this, at this loss where I thought I had some sense of, uh, you know, incidentally, constantly sick. Um, lost a lot of weight, all of the other symptoms were just as bad, always irritable, terrible diarrhea, couldn't eat. It was, it, was, it was quite a frustrating circumstance and very disempowering, this sense that I was just stuck in this being and feeling broken with no energy and no capacity to do anything. Um, and my all my limbs were just like rubber. It was terrible. Anyway, enough. that was the breaking point. I suppose that's the point. Yeah. And that's when I ended up desperate again and ended up, I had someone who just said to me, I went to this Chinese doctor, you should go. He helped me with my thyroid thing. And I was like, I'll take anything, okay? Right? And that was an important moment because I rolled up and he said, oh, yeah, right, okay. You've kind of, you're a bit, you, you just need to like get out of where you're living now and um, I can help you, but it'll take time. And that's what I needed from someone because previously I'd gotten much you know it's interesting that it wasn't the treatment it was the what i guess people would call with with a, a kind of um in a derogatory way a placebo effect but i think it's fundamental to any kind of a relationship in psychoanalysis they call it transference where you come to someone and you start to invest in them and they say i can help you or you feel like they can help you and that building a relationship with someone is absolutely fundamental to that experience of feel of healing and feeling like you can heal whereas i would go to a you know, like a, a joint specialist, a rheumatologist, who'd go, oh, just take some anti-inflammatories. Yeah, you've damaged your nose. Wow, really? Thank you. Oh, drink some coffee, says the neurologist, you know, obviously, you know. So you went to see uh, Western doctors um, during this period too. Hmm. And found... Yeah, well, this is the thing. The neurologist was a few years earlier. Yeah. Um, but then the Western doctors, the, the, the rheumatologist and the GPs. Yeah, and they just went. And they were just basically addressing symptoms or mm, trying to give you symptomatic right. relief 
Right, right, right. Symptomatic relief. Um, to the extent that they can also to the level of yeah. Perhaps I wasn't sufficiently articulate about it. I know retrospectively, I have friends, a few, not many, who have gone through similar things, and their diagnosis has been chronic fatigue and also fibromyalgia. And I imagine that had I persisted, and forced. And kept on, and you know, for them it was a journey for diagnosis. Two, three, four, five, six years. I jumped shit before I got to there. That's what I remember speaking to you mm. about, which was, and it speaks to what you're saying with a Chinese doctor. In a way, the tremendous, some give you some kind of certainty or clarity to get a clear, definable diagnosis. This is the problem. Yeah. Therefore, we can look into that and treat yeah. it this way or that way. Except the notion of diagnosis is very different in Chinese medicine. Yeah. Um, there is not like this list of diseases, um, or of, in the case, my case of chronic, you know, syndromes. So situations that we see a lot, but we don't understand the mechanisms and processes of, um, that sort of seem to recur and stuff people around that we can't do much about, which, you know, it's fine, you know, like it is what it is, but in Chinese medicine, the approach um, proceeds differently, I guess. I could talk about that, I suppose. Yeah, I think uh, it'd be worth. I mean, if we get back to this question of causation. Okay. Uh, I think that's what's really helpful mm. for people for trying to distinguish between traditional Chinese medicine and Western medicine, however traditional it really is. Mm. The question mm. of causation, though, I think yeah. it's very central. Mm. And um, I mean, I've noticed this, I've had a few ailments here or there. And I find when I see a Western doctor, there's this strong conviction in a certain kind of causality, right. which is A causes B. And we'll look at what the B is, and then we'll try and address the A. And it's sort of very linear. And You have eczema, all right, I'm going to give you some, some kind of a steroid thing that will help to reduce the eczema. It's funny you should mention that. I mean, obviously you can see it there. Yep. I went yep. to a doctor yesterday. And they gave you some steroids? And they gave me, and he looked right. at it, and it's like, it's eczema, so take some steroids. So Chinese, if a Chinese medicine practitioner would see some eczema, that would not be the problem that they want to address. That would be an expression of the problem. So what, in in that case at least, a, a GP might look at it and go, all right, this is the ailment, we must treat it. The TCM person will say, all right, that is a symptom of something fundamentally that isn't working appropriately in your system more generally and that system could imply more than just the workings of the body it could be a reciprocal relationship between body and environment or yes something. absolutely so in chinese medicine there are um internal and external causes of disease or of it'd be better said as i understand it as of kind of a lack of harmony between the systems so food air weather um mood well, no, sorry, food, air, weather, these sorts of things, as I understand it, are external influences, but your affective world are internal influences. And each of them can lead to a destabilisation. So my anxiety over something, which might become habituated, it used to be that around tests when I was at school or whatever, just as an example, and then it became just the way I would operate around any sort of an environment where I felt like I was being judged. And then that, that would... This isn't me, this is me just sort of <laughs> speaking. <laughs> that, that, that would then lead to a kind of a an anxiety uh, sorry that anxiety would actually be causal of a kind of a an imbalance because when I'm anxious I don't eat and in not eating you know it's not you know it's because my system does not have 
the capacity to, to function in that way. And then that, that weakens other parts of me and leads to a kind of systemic in capacity to, to draw nourishment, to draw, you know, to produce chi from the food that I eat. And then that has all these other consequences, maybe my other systems, and I won't get into the technical detail that I don't know very well, but that will ha- compromise mm. all my other systems, right? So we're talking about, for, for one and more, much more complex chain of causation. Right, right, right. Potentially in the West. Right. But, but even anxiety is the expression of other systems. So I was talking about the digestion, but the reason I can't digest properly is because other systems are being taxed. And, yeah. It does lead to a certain problem, which I see, um, which is purely practical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, metaphysically, it's, for me, a little bit closer to, I think, how reality runs. Mm. But the point where you I, might... I will qualify that again and say there is, in what is called the Western tradition, a degree of understanding about that. And in certain contexts, a real desire to work on and through that. Um, and to the extent that there's a critique of that approach, it's, uh, for me, it's a different critique, but maybe you have a question first. Well, the question is, um, if there is a more complex problem, I mean, excrement itself could be an expression of a complex problem, or it could be something relatively simple. But let's say that is a more Well, in complex Chinese medicine, it's always an expression of a problem. So the question is, when you work with a more <clears throat> complex chain of causation which includes external and internal environmental and so mm. forth <clears throat> you can almost be led to an infinite regress can't you right. you know where like so at what point do you say well here's here's where we can do something to fix x y or z uh, causality becomes irrelevant that's that's what i think i think at a certain point why did these things happen what were the causes for it they become completely irrelevant. Like what's relevant and what matters is how can I intervene into the situation as it stands? And so in Feldenkrais, learning how to move in ways that don't strain or stress you, that don't overwhelm you, that, that are as easy as they can be, as graceful as they can be, um, that allow you to feel capable. That's a point of intervention that allow you to recognize how certain modes of movement actually have emotional correlates. Um, or expressions but in a similar way in Chinese medicine learning that when I eat particular things when I feel particular ways when I breathe particular sorts of air that that has consequences and that I might learn to um, allow different sorts of things into me in order to create different effects than what I'm learning through developing awareness that for me I learned through Feldenkrais and applied to Chinese medicine kind of, um, to the, those principles in Chinese medicine more broadly, how can I be aware in terms of what I eat? What would a real literacy, not just in terms of movement, but in terms of rest, in terms of food, in terms of air, in terms of the way I try to relate to people, what, what might that, <clears throat> how might that function as points of intervention, irrespective of the causes, irrespective of how it happened that I got to this point? How can I actually intervene because in Chinese medicine they'll say causality is very simple it's either you you know there's there's your you know the seed like your parents what you get from them and then how you function in the world you can't do anything about what you got from your parents and it's always complex and multiple and it's not just straightforward you know up and down but then it's how do you function in the world and what led to me being where I am is sort of not so relevant to me what's relevant to me is how can I intervene so there is that causality but it's not relevant practically does mm. that make sense it does make sense um it sounds like more maybe we could cash it out as it's, it's a bit more instead of addressing things retro retrospectively 
trying to fix up something that's gone wrong in the past. Moving into a modality which is more present to the future oriented. Yeah. Yeah. Which again, and we had that discussion before we were beginning, is kind of more in that Deleuzean frame again. That in a sense, what happened when you were a child, although it's relevant to how you are now, what's very important is how do you function now and how would you like to function in the future? Which is also Feldenkrais's point. I've built up these um, habits that were expedient at the time. I need to ask myself, are they still expedient? And in Chinese medicine, yeah, there's all these things got, that have happened. And like I've said to you, I personally, my memory of myself is as old as some of this stuff that now I can associate with how I got to be where I was at. Um, but what's more important is how do I intervene? And in Chinese medicine, it's acupuncture. It's um, those herbal, those mixtures of herbs that seek to reorganize how all of the systems work and make help them to work in harmony, but also to build um, your, you know, to build up your strength, let's just say, your deepest sort of life force, right? And then to allow things to work well together to support that. Now, going back to my own memory of this, I did see it was slow and gradual, but nonetheless, <laughs> it was also unmissable. The mm. way you went from a period of being completely disempowered and mm. almost broken mm. to mm. steadily and surely gaining a kind of robust um, vitality mm. again and just on, you know, rebalancing and, you know, to, to where you are today, which seems to be, you know, a picture of vitality and health. Well, I still, see, but I still feel like there's a long way to go. I still get tired very easily. Um, I need to rest regularly um i can get through days without needing to rest whereas a few years ago i'd need to rest constantly um but now after a long day the first thing i do is i eat half an hour later i'm down and i might be down for a few hours um just pass out like i, I get and, and when i don't have to go out i will rest regularly still um the difference is if i need to push i can push and um there is more of me just feel like there's more of me but that's not to say that i'm a picture of vitality. I definitely don't don't feel like that. Um, you mentioned a bit earlier that uh, these there was a kind of a placebo effect, but just by having the Chinese doctor actually just listen carefully and take you on board as a patient. Right, right. And that in itself was maybe the most powerful thing. For, well, uh, look. Um, so placebo is almost um, often taken as a kind of a a way of dismissing things, um, dismissing people's experience, but um, it's funny so we've both studied philosophy and, and one of the things that we I feel like maybe we both learned and I'm thinking principally of, of Foucault here is that knowledge forms cells um, the way we think and the way the world thinks and the stories that we tell to ourselves and the stories that are told to us actually inform how we are as people so of course when one goes to a medical professional who has expert authority who we've been taught our whole lives has this authority, what they say to us informs the way we imagine ourselves and the possibilities that exist in the world. Um, when the term placebo is used, often it's used to denigrate certain experiences. But at the same time, in, in the tradition of, of you know, in, in, in medicine today, there is, a, I think, as I understand it, an increasing understanding of the positive powers of what can be called placebo, but actually is of relationships and of knowledge in one's health. Knowledge and, and, and expectations. 
actually matter for one's health. Which again is totally in line for me with what Feldenkrais has to say and what I've sort of drawn from Chinese medicine. Did you draw anything from the actual conception of the body and the self and the environment that's central to Chinese medicine? In you're going back to Aikido and so the idea yeah. of qi and the idea right, right, of... right. Okay, so this is interesting. So in Chinese medicine, there is a language of... Um, that, you know, it's funny. So that there are a series of, of quite um, different ways of thinking that are being brought together in this kind of, again, this Maoist systematization of a host of different traditions from this bureaucratic state that's lasted for thousands of years. And some of those have been useful for me. I think the language, the dietetic language, which is not just Chinese. I mean, there was a tradition in Europe and a tradition in India and I'm sure other places too, where how a food affects me is more important than what chemicals are in it. Mm. So, um, you know, this language that is quite, you know, fam- I'm sure familiar to at least some of your listeners of warming foods and cooling foods and dry foods and damp foods. That language, although sometimes I don't necessarily... You know, and it's, it's not just that. There are, you know, things that, that raise, you know, that move up. There's things that move down. There are, there's a host of different tools for making sense of how one is affected by food. This enters, enters the kidney system. That enters the spleen, la, la, la. I don't necessarily pick up a piece of food and feel like I can codify using all of that language. But what I have drawn from that is a sense that food affects me and how I feel when I eat is more important than what is meant to be healthy, right? According to expert knowledge, which is not to say that I'm totally dismissive of the incredible knowledge around, say, macronutrients and micronutrients and all of that, only that more fundamentally, when I eat, I need to answer the question of how does this make me feel? And I have a kind of an internal literacy where I can feel different foods entering different parts of me, for lack of a better word, as soon as they enter me. I feel them doing particular things and I have my own little internal literacy for how those things work and how it changes over time and the need to constantly be aware of that. So that's just in terms of food. The language of chi makes a lot of sense to me in terms of um, that process. So how things move through me when I'm resting, when I allow myself to rest, when I eat, when I'm excited, when I'm in all these different sorts of states. The language of chi helps me helps to make sense of the sensations that I, I experience. Do you do any bodily practices to cultivate chi or increase well, chi? I, I take Feldenkrais to be a bodily practice that yeah. cultivates chi. Like, I mean, you're still doing specific exercises and stuff. Ah, that's interesting. So it reaches a point with Feldenkrais where it just informs how you are all the time. So it feels more diffuse than that. It's that I need to deal with the fact that I'm sitting on a chair right now. I need to deal with the fact that I'm going to be lying down later. I'm riding a bike. How is that bike organized? I'm riding on a computer with a de- with a with a keyboard. I'm carrying a bag. I'm dancing. I'm um, preparing food. I'm mowing the lawn. In all of those instances, the knowledge from Feldenkrais, which is not this is the correct way to do things, but here you know how to inquire into this and to do it in a way that feels easy, graceful and connected, integrated. So what I neglected to say before is that in Feldenkrais, as distinct from practices such as Pilates, you don't force, you don't fight, you don't stretch and you don't isolate. 
the emphasis is always on making things easy and coordinated and connected. So with that kind of an approach, and that's the systematicity, right? So ideally, where Feldenkrais wants to take you is get to a point where everything you do is as supported and integrated as possible, right? If you can find that, that if you can find that, right? So if you can, so yeah, so like you're not going to be forced. You can't be forced to make a movement more connected or integrated. But if you feel pain or you're stretching, then you're not paying attention anymore. If you can find a way to do things that make it easier, then you will discover in that ease that it is more expedient. So it right? sounds like you almost need a constant awareness. That's okay. So it's it's the capacity to bring your awareness always, but it's not it's not an obsessive or neurotic awareness. So it's I know always that I can bring my literacy to myself. I can go, oh, okay, what's happening here? Oh, geez, you know, you're looking very tired. I, you know, I might say to myself, oh, I'm, you know, I might notice. Sorry, I will. Um, always be able to bring myself to an awareness of where I'm at to recognize my needs in terms of where I'm at. But I can also not bring my attention to those habits and rely on my habits because I don't always want to be just focusing on that, my physicality. I always want to be capable when it becomes a necessity. Yeah, I was about to ask you actually whether there could be something maybe even constraining about that level of awareness in that... Um, only, I mean, sorry to interrupt, but yes, if it was something that was all about constantly being aware, but that's not yeah. what it's about. It's about being always capable of bringing one's awareness as a, as, as a kind of a, in the same way that I'm always capable of bringing my thoughts to, oh, Australia Day comes around, all right, well, let's start to think critically about the politics of this event and um, what it means for Indigenous people and... and um, alternative histories that we might might need to tell that we do need to tell that run counter to the official narrative and then this is gaining ground now so whenever this 26th of january turns up this is where my thoughts go to um but not every second of the day but it's somewhere where i can go i've cultivated you know the capacity to go there sounds actually very close to the buddhistic idea of smriti or mindfulness Mm -hmm. which is um i mean the big the big problem from that buddhistic point of view is lack of mindfulness the lack of capacity to i suppose have agency over where your awareness goes and doesn't go right right and you seem to be saying in feldenkrais through feldenkrais or with feldenkrais that that's the essential capacity you need to unlock yeah and privilege and maybe take care of to some degree cultivate i would use um that word probably but i would say it's not so much about having control over where your awareness goes i think there's a lot to be said for letting go of, of again, a kind of a neurotic control of where my, where one's awareness or how one movement, one's movement is. So yeah, I would definitely say, yeah, so in Feldenkrais, it's not about control over awareness. It's about being able to direct one's awareness in the context of the constraints of the situation. So not con- so it's in, in a funny way, we could go back to, to Aikido, like, it's not about being able to control another person. It's about having an active relationship to what the other person is doing. So that if I am if I'm using that awareness, I'm doing so because the circumstances, my circumstances call for me to do so. 
but there are certain circumstances in which it's not expedient for me. And this is the word I keep using because I think it's a great, it's a great way of framing things that Feldenkrais uses. It's not expedient for me to think about how I'm moving. I can rely on the fact that I've been cultivating certain habits. That I don't need to constantly be thinking about all of the things that are happening in my movement because I've cultivated habits that I've, that I've decided are expedient. But it could be that there are a new set of circumstances. It could be my own fatigue. It could be, um, you know, a new thing that I'm interfacing with. Um, it could be the attempt to explore dance. And how can I? Because there's lots of dance styles that are quite uh, disruptive to the ways that I would like to move. So I need to think. Well, do I even want to try and learn this style of dance, or can I modify it? And then I can bring it up to my awareness. Or it could be, um, oh, um, I've got an injury. Right? How do I work with this injury? How can I not let it lead to the development of new habits? Um, Is there potentially a goal associated with all of this? I'm almost automatically assuming no. Accounting <laughs> for everything you've been telling us, but well, a goal of it becoming all of this becoming somewhat automated. No, definitely not automated. Because again, it's all it's all about the cultivation of a kind of an agency. So the goal is definitely not automation. To the extent that there is a goal, I mean, I can't speak for any any I tradition. Thinking, I was thinking a bit like thinking about an athlete or someone in some area of the arts. Dance mm. was a good example. Who does an enormous amount of training on technique, and then at some point, if they're successful. The conscious effort in maintaining that technique drops away to something which becomes far more organic and right, just right, a right, natural right. expression of having mastered the art. Right, but, and this is what I didn't say before, I will still do Feldenkrais-like explorations and, and that will then further cultivate or, you know, listen to a lesson online or go to a class or something or go to a one-on-one -on -one session with a practitioner occasionally to stimulate me to re-engage or to find a new point of entry or a new site of engagement that I might have neglected or that, that maybe, um, you know, allow me to deepen an understanding of something in the same way an, an artist or, a, or, a, or an athlete, they probably, if they want to improve, need to bring their attention to those habits and to ask themselves if there's ways where they can shave a second off their 100 metres or something if they change the, um, the dynamics of their sprint or something. I, I, you know, it's beyond my knowledge there. But, but they definitely, once they become habituated, if they want to improve, obviously there's just strengthening and stamina and stuff. But there may also be technique type issues. And that's when they return. They wrench themselves out of their habits. And then they try to reintegrate and create new habits. What about, can say, be dangerous though. a musician who, uh, you know, might take you... I mean, athlete is uh, not a great example, but a musician who has to master the instrument and master also on the intellectual level yep. music or yeah, however yeah, you yeah. want to cash it out. But then it seems to me there's, there might be some, maybe it's purely idealistic or romantic, but it's, it's definitely romantic actually. It's this idea of being a musician <laughs> who arrives at a point of complete spontaneity and freedom where right. they just express themselves through their instrument or in right. whatever form where they're almost not even there. There's a kind Could, of uh, trans transcendence of awareness, mm -hmm. transcendence of being attuned to habit and technique and just the natural expression of... This is... I mean, this is... Uh, there's so many responses to that. I suppose the first response is it's a false dichotomy to talk about um, habit and then spontaneity. Um, it's a very Nietzschean thing, is that discipline is the kind of 
tool through which one can become through through which culture is created, right? Constraints, repetition, uh, habituation, whether it is in learning to draw. I mean, you can't be a spontaneous well, great artist unless you learn to draw. You can't. Be I'm a not denying musician. that. I suppose so, what I'm saying though is that's the first response. The habits yes. would be operative, but not the cognitive awareness of them in the act of right. So them. that's it. But again, if I'm if I'm a musician. The cognitive awareness of... I mean, there's different sorts of habits, whether they are an understanding of what's happening at the level of rhythm or melody or harmony or something. And then there's kind of the technical, you know, the, the, the material moving of my fingers or breath or whatever it happens to be. And they're two different uh, s- uh, part elements of, ha- of the habits that are necessary for a musician, right? Mm. Um, in both cases... I just feel it's, it's not that both things are necessary. Habit and this kind of standing on habit in order to take things into that, that place where suddenly yourself becomes a different sort of thing, right? Like, I, I feel like I, I, I don't see the problem. Maybe what I'm saying is I don't see the problem in what you're proposing. Well, I'm not saying it's a problem. I'm wondering whether that might be uh, a goal. To be able to be able to so a goal of my the way I take Feldenkrais or the Chinese medicine or whatever it is the goal would be to you're you're proposing the goal as being able to cultivate habits such that one can you know whether whether it's a you know there's analogs I'm thinking say in in the Zen tradition of this sort of thing where you cultivate those habits so that you can reach a point where it's almost like it's not even about a self anymore, right? And there's just this total absorption in a practice. Yeah. Something along those lines. Okay. Yeah. So I would say, yep, fine. That could be a goal so that you can... I, I don't think that either Feldenkrais or Chinese medicine um, would um, actively, explicitly go there in particular, but I don't think they would be averse to it either. Mm. Personally... Look, there was a time when I couldn't play my guitar because it was too physically uncomfortable. So mm. maybe, maybe I mean, yeah, that would work for me. <laughs> like, <laughs> do I have goals beyond that? Um, although I will say, whenever I try and do something new on the guitar, I do have to go back, take myself out of the habits. And that's sort of what I was alluding to. And that's, but that's the Feldenkrais process, right? Yeah. So you've got the habits, but sometimes you need to leave them in order to recalibrate them. And there's almost like a circle. In a way, maybe what we're saying is that those more organic or fresh moments are simply the creation of new habits. Or to put it in neuroscience terms, you know, creation of new neural pathways or something like that. So I wouldn't want to say that. So it's not the creation of new habits. I would say, again, in that, that I called it Deleuzean before, the expression maybe of those habits, that the habits obviously like are the soil and, and out of that soil will become... Well, well, something will grow, right? Well, let's just call them new formations of older habits. But they're more than just formations of habits, mm. right? They're act, they're acts of, they're acts of creation of expression. So the habits are the, are the thing that facilitate it. But you know, someone doing some fantastic improvisation or whatever, or in that moment of writing a piece of music, that's not just habit. You know, that that's a that's a moment which requires the habits mm. but it exceeds them grows out of them I, I think maybe that's a good metaphor there's the soil which is the habit and 
the plant, you know, maybe the seed is also the habits, but then the plant grows. And, you know, it's dealing with the sunlight and the rain and the quality of the soil and... Because the quality of the soil matters, right? If you can only play three chords on your guitar. You know, I use this metaphor so many times in so many different circumstances. <laughs> so I really appreciate it. As does Descartes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it just works to explain so much. Yeah, yeah. Um, Which is dangerous, right? Potentially. <laughs> potentially. Well, just, just to finish up, mm. I suppose um, connecting this notion of a goal or um, a telos and the, uh, the way the modern wellness movements uh, burgeoning in every direction where there seems to be this underlying quest for something like you know dietary perfection or right. embodied perfection yeah. this idea of being perfectly happy or comfortable or balanced or whatever it is that is the goal um, and that you know if you do this that or the other then you can achieve that mm-hmm. so holy moly so that's, that's a whole other hour I mean there's so much <laughs> discussed there there is the, the commodification of health, right? This idea that it can be bought and sold. Um, there's this confusion of um, of body image with notions of health. Um, there's this notion that the point of mindfulness is to just be a more productive worker, which often comes up. Um, there's um, notions of um, self self-advertisement if that makes sense that this almost like the insta culture which you know connects back to that commodification stuff and then those are the things that jump into my head but this this whole wellness industry thing does worry me in a whole lot of ways um, and it's definitely something that i'm i'm super cagey about mm, it seems to me falcon christ is quite contrary to that it's, very... well, it's quite against the pill i mean that's that's how i sort of started yeah and you sort of said well it's been really slow and i'm like yeah it's really slow like the point like there's no pill um there's no super thing and it's also like what i love you know feldenkrais this guru in his old life he's this you know man with a big pot belly Mm. you know and he's selling he's selling health and he's also selling right he's selling Mm. health and it's like again this body image stuff is is not what's this is what should be our focus in these things um and being fixed real quick um and transforming your life in you know 12 easy steps i mean it's bullshit right so, Carl, uh, we probably should wrap it up there. There's hours and hours more that I think no we could draw out of you. Um, but you've given us a hell of a lot to chew on. So Thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you very much for coming in. And uh, well, I've come to your place. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me. And uh, Thank you for visiting. There we go. Yes. Let us continue in our reciprocal thanks. And stay tuned for more podcasts <laughs> at aratehouse.com.au.